Good morning. It is Sunday, November 15th, and we're kind of nearing the end of the course. Uh, this week, we're looking at value diversity. We're looking at uh, social injustice in terms of access to the healthcare system. We're looking at general inequalities in terms of healthcare delivery. And we're considering all of this during a period of time when our region has actually become the worst place in the entire world for COVID outbreaks. So yesterday, Minnesota reached a, a grim milestone of 8,500 new cases reported. We had a record number of 39 deaths and our positivity rate on tests went above 14.5%. Something under 5% is considered to be um, the target. It's, that's, that's the level at which you can bring the virus under control. And although Minnesota only had the eighth worst uh, new cases per capita reporting in the country, all of the states around us are just terrible by that measure. So North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin are all in the top five states in terms of the highest number per capita of new COVID cases. And there's a third aspect to this that's really kind of uh, difficult to wrap our heads around, which is this is all so predictable, right? It's not as if we didn't understand how to bring this pandemic under control. We knew from our experience in the 1918 pandemic that it would uh, rage in the spring, it would probably decline a little bit in the summer. Of course, nationally, the United States never really did that. We stayed at a level rate of pretty high infection, but we never actually dropped down. And then we knew that as the cold weather arrived, that the number of infections would go back up. And certainly, if you've looked at the kind of spike in cases, that has been almost a straight line up. So one of the things that's hard, at least for me to wrap my head around, maybe also for you, is this is so predictable. We know that if you isolate yourself, if you wear a mask, if you use gloves, if you avoid contact, if you stay away from group activities, uh, this is the most effective way to bring the virus under control. And as we near a quarter of a million uh, deaths, um, it just is uh, somewhat befuddling to me personally that we can't seem to wrap our heads around this kind of basic level of control. And so I wanted to kind of do that as a framing because I think this week also, in addition to these questions of social injustice, right, we're also asking questions about how values influence the way in which people determine information, right? It influences the way in which people receive information and how they process information. It shapes who they think is credible and not credible. Uh, and I wanted to really uh, start with the Lupia piece to ask these questions about is it possible that we've reached a level of political polarization or ideological polarization where um, some folks simply will not receive health information? And in the discussion forum this week, I asked you to think about ways in which you might modify your message because it's actually rural areas now that on a per capita basis have fewer healthcare resources and they have higher per capita levels of infection. So what is it about rural areas that doesn't seem to be getting through? Why can't rural areas uh, get the type of healthcare messaging that seems to be working much better in urban areas? And I can kind of speak to that having moved from St. Paul to Mankato. Mankato's not as exactly rural, it's maybe more exurban, but I could go a solid month in downtown St. Paul without seeing someone in public not wearing a mask. Virtually every time I go to the grocery store here in Mankato, there'll be at least one person I see that's not wearing a mask. So something as simple and elementary as masking doesn't seem to be taking hold um, in the same way in this region as it did certainly in downtown St. Paul. So when we come back after the jump, I'm gonna start with the Lupia piece about value diversity and how to manage that 
and almost think of it as an educational problem or a public health care messaging problem to try and get our heads around the best way, the most effective way to deliver health care messages to skeptical po- populations. All right. Thanks much. Right, I'd like to begin talking about Lupia's chapter on value diversity and how to manage it. And he starts this chapter by pointing out that value diversity causes people to give different answers to questions like what information is most valuable to convey and who needs to know it. And he talks about values, he defines those as concepts or beliefs, desirable end states, that's the most typical definition of a value in our field is what constitutes a good or desirable end state. He talks about them as actions that transcend specific situations or as ideologies that guide the selection or evaluation of behaviors and events. And I think uh, any of those meanings is a perfectly good way to think about values. And in his overview, he says values affect how people perceive and process information Values drive information uh, or drive uh, individuals rather to embrace certain types of information and reject others. And I would add there that values are a form of governing the source credibility attachments or the ethos attachments that we give to certain sources. And he says values often have these uh, effects before prospective listeners are conscious of them. In other words, they have these effects even if prospective listeners have difficulty describing Uh, their values or difficulty describing the ways in which they derive information. And so Lupia says this is a really difficult situation to save because in most adults, these values are hardwired and they're very difficult to change. And I think of that, I think that, uh, you know, the United States uh, getting hit with a COVID pandemic at the precise time when we have this uh, unique, or maybe not unique, but this uh, incredibly polarizing situation in our country where where we got a group of people that simply don't believe mass media they don't believe expertise there's a populist insurgency that uh they, they no longer there's a certain percentage of the public and it could be as high as 45 percent but it's at least 25 percent of the public i believe uh has lost an attachment to the typical ways in which we would go about Uh, answering questions, right? The typical ways we would go about deriving factual answers. And so once this became politicized, and it did that in this country very early in the pandemic, right? Because the president really did not want this to interfere with his electoral prospects. He didn't want to shut the economy down. Very early on, he started shifting responsibility to the state level, and he started doing things like undermining basic public health expertise, simple things like masking, for example. Uh, And he's continued to do that really throughout the pandemic. So as a result, we get a whole series of uh, public statements on the pandemic that are just patently false. So at the precise time during the campaign, when caseloads were rising every day, number of deaths were rising every day, the president was going to rallies telling his followers continuously, we're turning the corner on the pandemic. It's no more harmful than the flu. Uh, He was making fun of people who are wearing masks. And all of this, I think, has just been enormously destructive. It is, of course, most destructive for his followers. But those followers aren't necessarily the ones that end up dying as a result of the disease spreading. And so when they return to their home communities, they may not suffer from the virus, but they may pass the virus on to someone who's more vulnerable. And that um, the wedding that we talked about some weeks ago, uh, where that the 
uh, preacher attended several different weddings and other people went to the reception. It ended up killing, uh, I think it was 13 people so far, but none of those 13 people were actually people that had attended the reception, right? So they became sick with COVID. They then passed that disease on to someone else who was more vulnerable. So uh, again, Lupius says um, the most important lesson for this is that educators who hope to increase competency among publics about public health messages or about messages in general have to present information that's necessary and, and sufficient to increase the knowledge base, but they also have to uh, present this information in a way that it's consistent with the person's core values and their concerns so they'll pay attention to it and think about it in ways that will reinforce the desired behavioral outcomes. And I think that's one of the huge challenges that we face uh, in addressing this. Uh, I'll come back afterwards to talk about the rest of Lupia's book. So the key thing I wanted to focus on here is Lupia's discussion of small tent persuasion and big tent persuasion. And what he's saying here is when uh, any kind of a source goes to address a small audience that has kind of ideologically consistent or um, sociologically consistent beliefs, attitudes, values, and opinions, that uh, necessitates one certain type of persuasion. So in our field, we would call such an audience homophilius. There's self-similarity with the audience. So if I were to address a group that I shared their values, there are certain things that I could take for granted and certain beliefs that I could take for granted. If it's a friendly ideological group, then I would probably focus more on motivating their behavior rather than persuading them. So if I were speaking to a group that already believed in the importance of a particular public health practice, I'd probably focus my remarks on things like, we know you believe in masking, but here's how you avoid pandemic fatigue. Right? Here's how you motivate yourself and your family members and others around you to stay strong during the pandemic. The, the uh, idea that we could have a vaccine as early as the second quarter of 2021 means we're really in the final six months or so. So I would probably uh, devote more of my time as a public health educator to stressing those types of things. I would provide information that was necessary and sufficient to increase their competency, and I would work on trying to persuade them and motivate them. In big tents, right, big tents are different. In big tents, I have people uh, that, that re represent a wide range of different beliefs, values, opinions, behaviors, and ideologies. So in a big tent, it is necessary for me to engage publics in a big tent. But here my persuasive challenge is different. And one of the things that I would think about is uh, how would I pose a message to a hostile audience? That's an interesting question. And if I think about it from a values point of view, right, if we have this kind of, um, I mentioned in the discussion chat blog this week, the divide between a, an urban uh, group and rural groups in terms of what types of risks they perceive. And so when I'm in a space where there are fewer people, there's less population density, there's perhaps uh, somewhat of a, a, a tendency to think of population density as being a native risk factor of achieving COVID. And so I might want to focus that uh, effort on persuading people. And again, my goal here is to give um, information that is necessary and, and sufficient. So I've got to provide a bedrock of information that might be things about how the disease is spread and how you can prevent it. But I also have to approach them in a value way that reflects their worldview, that kind of corresponds with their worldview. So I'm not going to answer that question, but I point that out as one of the things I posed in the, um, in the discussion 
forum this week. So they say these values have a strong and deep effect on the way people uh, experience the world, that people's lived experiences matter, right? So their personal experiences are instrumental. And as a persuasive source, if I can think about ways to reference those lived experiences, that makes my message uh, more important or more salient or more newsworthy or more attentive uh, generating. I want to think about preferences. These are these comparative evaluations of a set of objects and attitudes, which are summary predispositions to act. So a preference can serve as a cognitive marker that reminds people how to interact with various aspects of their environment. Preferences are these kind of stored memory devices that we draw upon uh, when needed. And so um, that's all I'm going to say about Lupia. I think the article is really interesting. And I do think that, you know, his talk about things like attribution errors and um, out-of-group bias, stereotyping, motivated reasoning, those are all great things to think about in terms of what are the things that stop people from receiving information. So you should definitely familiarize yourself with those aspects. But I'm really curious this week to look at how you feel we could more effectively reach people who aren't getting basic healthcare messages. All right, thanks much. So the other piece we have this week is uh, a very short piece by Gostin called Good Science Plus Good Ethics Equal Good Law. And I think this is really an excellent primer. Gostin goes through five key elements that he believes will bring a sense of social justice and uh, equality into our notion of healthcare preparedness. And I really thought this was a great way to think about uh, how we as a society could provide a more just, more equitable distribution of healthcare resources. So he presents these as kind of five general rules. And I just wanna kind of go through those five rules for pandemic preparedness. The first thing he talks about is he says, we ought to employ cosmopolitan ethics. So a cosmopolitan ethic views humankind as a single community with shared responsibilities. And these relationships are based on mutual respect. We have a duty to assist others when they face hardships. He talks about in times of economic threat, History teaches us that uh, societies tend to become more insular, and he's trying to, to push back against that. So he is opposed to things like erecting barriers to trade and travel, mostly because they don't work, right? So these are mostly short-term. We've read several articles uh, along that score that say, unless you are more than 99% effective uh, trying to restrict a virus or the spread of a virus or the spread of a pandemic with travel restrictions alone, is not especially uh, effective as a solution. And he also says that um, the smart course is to bring the epidemic under control rather than sealing borders. He says, secondly, we have to, def we have to protect domestic populations. So um, uh, this was perhaps the United States' biggest original sin in terms of responding to the pandemic is we lost two to three months uh, basically doing nothing to prepare the country, to uh, increase our resources, to beef up our emergency preparedness routines, to begin a public uh, communication campaign before the arrival of the pandemic on our shores. So we wasted a good deal of time and we didn't actually adequately protect our domestic 
populations. Uh, so the, he talks about the U.S. Congress uh, cutting the CDC's budget by more than a billion dollars. He talks about the gradual defunding and hollowing out of our healthcare system, the elimination of unnecessary beds under the guise of um, efficiency, right? And generally, our, um, our for-profit healthcare system is not a particularly effective way to administer health for large amounts of our population. So we suffer with people who have lack of access to health care, and we also suffer with uh, high expenses. So we have kind of the worst of uh, both worlds. He talks here about the kind of need to regulate things like antibiotics and overprescriptions, but that's not a particularly important piece when we think about uh, what's happening with COVID-19. Then he says we have a duty to protect the vulnerable, right? And he talks about that globally, but also domestically. We have a responsibility to protect those who are most vulnerable to make sure that um, vaccines and treatments are equitably distributed globally. And uh, also that we have a responsibility to protect populations. In our sense, in the United States, that would be people that were in long-term care facilities or that had compromised immune systems or that were elderly populations. He talks about a duty for civic engagement, right? And points to the Ebola uh, response as an example. He says community members have to be engaged in epidemic uh, preparedness and response and community health workers are perhaps the most effective way to do that. Again, when there's discord at the top, when, when there's not unanimity, when our healthcare scientists and experts are telling us one thing, but the political establishment is telling us something else, uh, that's a failure of this level of civic engagement. And then finally, he says we have a duty to calibrate interventions based on scientific risk assessment. So we know that some folks are more, um, more vulnerable to this disease than others. And we also know that some people are more likely to be exposed. So for example, frontline health workers, emergency workers, essential workers. And so when we think about distributing a, a vaccine equitably, when we finally get to the point of distributing a vaccine, uh, those are the types of things that ought to be at the forefront of our minds in terms of promoting social justice and promoting equal access. All right, I'll stop there, but I thought it was a very short but very interesting article, and I hope that you enjoyed it too.